Now I want to transition to our sermon for this morning. We are continuing in our One Another series, looking at God's invitation to community and what it means to be a people marked by love. Our scripture reading today is from Colossians 3, 12 to 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. How's everyone doing? Good morning, good morning. So many exciting summer tables. Vera did a great job. Um, yeah, you guys should come and have lunch with us after the service. If that wasn't already your plan, it'll be super fun. Um, I'm sure there will be some very inspiring and helpful questions to help you to deep to dive right into friendship. Um, if you haven't met already, my name is Mandy. I'm on staff here at Reality Church Boston, and today I'm going to be continuing our sermon series on the one another commands that we see in the New Testament. And together these commands show us what it looks like to love one another, which is the overarching theme of our sermon series. So, so far this summer, we've talked about what it means to belong to serve, to encourage, to care for, and to humble ourselves before one another. And so I really appreciate how each of these topics kind of gives us a different angle and perspective on what love is. Because we don't want our concept of love to accidentally become one-dimensional or to be based solely on what's comfortable or convenient for us. Because love is God's very nature and character. So to grow in love is actually to grow in our knowledge of God. And by pressing into these one another commands, we are slowly but surely being shaped into a people who reflect God's transformative love. So today, um, as Vera read, we have not one, but actually two one another statements that are just packed in the same verse. So Colossians 3.13 calls us to both bear with one another and to forgive one another. And so the good news is that they're both incredibly challenging and weighty topics. So here's the thing. Here's the thing about the topic I signed myself up for. Patience and forgiveness are so important that we could do an entire sermon series just on these. So I know that my 30-minute message here is not going to be exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination. So really, we're just going to ask Jesus to meet us where we are right here, right now, with these topics. And even if we only manage to kind of dip our toes into the waters today, it's still worth it because patience and forgiveness are two of the most powerful expressions of God's love. They are integral to the life of Jesus, and they have the power to bring real healing and change into our lives, into the lives of those around us. But to respond to this call, we are definitely going to need some supernatural assistance. So let me first open us with a word of prayer, and we will just ask God to meet us in our time of need, in my time of need this morning. So let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that your very character, your very nature is forgiveness, is patience. You even call yourself that a God, as a God who is slow to anger, but you are full of mercy and long-suffering and compassion. And God, we just pray that we would have an encounter with you this morning, that we would see more clearly the beauty of who you are. Lord, we know that there are so many things 
that each of us carries into a moment like this, into a Sunday morning. Things from far in our past, things maybe even from the last week, things that we've wrestled with, that we've brought before mentors and, and elders and therapists and people who we've just poured our hearts out, out to. And Lord, there might also be things that we haven't even begun to address things that are in our hearts, unforgiveness and, and pain and, and difficulty that we haven't even brought before you yet, Lord. And so we recognize that we might be very, in very different places here today. We just ask that you, our good shepherd, would meet us, that you would show that you care for the healing of our hearts, for the restoration of our souls, that you desire to draw us nearer to yourself, God. We believe that you are present here today. We believe that you want to meet with us. So we just pray that you would speak your word directly to each of us today, and that, again, that you would show us that you desire for your people to come near to you, and that we can trust that you are the good shepherd of our souls. So please meet with us today, Jesus. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Right, I'm going to move this up just a tiny bit if I can. It's kind of squeaky. All right. So as we read, our passage today is from the book of Colossians. So now, the church at Colossae was started by this man named Epaphras, who was a friend of Paul the Apostle. And Epaphras writes a letter to Paul, kind of updating him on all the great things that are happening within this church, but also the struggles and temptations that they were facing, presumably to ask Paul's advice. So Paul's response is this letter that we have that we call Colossians. And so the Colossians, this church was experiencing these pressures, these external pressures to turn away from Jesus and to turn toward these alternate philosophies. And these kind of competing ideologies were critiquing the way that the Christians were pursuing God. The message that they were hearing was that faith in Jesus and their Christian way of life was not enough. They needed to do more, like observe certain festivals and religious days or avoid certain foods or worship angels or have supernatural visions. So in response, Paul basically cautions this church not to be taken captive by these hollow and deceptive philosophies, which may have an appearance of wisdom, but in reality, they lack any value. Because your faith, Paul reminds them, is not merely about checking off the right religious boxes or about like transcending the world with these mystical experiences. Our faith is rooted in Christ. He is the one who created and who sustains all things. He brought us from darkness into light. He gave us redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Christ has done it all, and nothing is lacking in him. So Paul's basically calling the Colossians to fix their eyes upon Jesus, to look to his goodness and power. Christ has given them new life, and renewed people live in renewed ways. So don't turn back to your old behavior, he's saying. Walk in the ways of Jesus. So to clarify what this looks like, Paul emphasizes certain Christ-like virtues and invites the Colossians to pursue them. So he says, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And then over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. So the call to bear with each other and to forgive one another is what it looks like to put these virtues into practice. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. And it's not a beautiful list. I mean, it sounds, it sounds appealing to me. A life in a community that are centered on these things would be awesome. But the question is, how do we get there? Even if we buy into this and we want to become patient and forgiving people, how do we do this? 
So I was starting to kind of get, I don't know, like analysis paralysis, I suppose, <laughs> just trying to decide how to even enter into these really weighty topics until I basically realized that we can start with the call of Jesus. And the message that he preached, very simply put, was repent and believe. So I'm going to gently steal that framework today, and we will look at forgiveness and patience through these two lenses. A call to repent, so to come to Jesus, and to receive his transformative forgiveness, and a call to believe, to trust in the power and the promises of Jesus. So these two items, just by themselves, are a lot to cover. And I actually considered not spending quite as much time on repentance, partly because it's an intimidating word, and just to kind of hone in on patience and forgiveness. But then I realized that we really can't have a well-grounded conversation about one without the other. Forgiveness is not a natural, instinctive reaction. Becoming a forgiving person is often the fruit of having received forgiveness. Becoming a patient person is often the byproduct of having witnessed the beauty of a patient, humble, compassionate spirit. And repentance is a pathway to both of those things. So this is where we need Jesus so badly. <laughs> Jesus is the embodiment of forgiveness and patience. And we can see what this looks like by reading through the Gospels, these biblical stories, accounts of Jesus' life. And so I want to point us to one story in particular that can help us see how Jesus' forgiveness has the tr power to transform us. So this story is from the Gospel of Luke. And at this point in the narrative, we're pretty far in. So Jesus has been in ministry for years. We're in kind of the final stretch before he's going to go to Jerusalem and walk that hard road to the cross. So in Luke 19, we meet a man who has heard about Jesus, how Jesus has traveled all over the country, healing the sick, touching lepers, forgiving sins, and welcoming in the despised in society. So this man is desperate to see Jesus because he knows that he is in need of forgiveness because he is a tax collector, which to the Jewish community, to the community made him the chief of sinners. Tax collectors were traitors. They worked for the Roman government, the oppressors of the common people. They abused their power to make themselves rich and they extracted money from people who had less. So nobody likes this guy. But he has heard that Jesus has a reputation for being a holy man, a healer, a prophet, who shares his dinner table with tax collectors and with sinners. So when he learns that Jesus has come to town, he is so eager to see him that when he can't get through the crowd, he climbs a tree just to get a glimpse of Jesus. So Jesus sees him and he calls out, Zacchaeus, come and hurry down for I must stay at your house today. So this man, Zacchaeus, is overjoyed to be welcomed by Jesus. But others who overhear the invitation start to grumble. This man isn't worthy to have this great teacher and healer under his roof. But Zacchaeus seems to understand the weight of having Jesus as a house guest. He isn't worthy, he, he knows that, so he does something to make it clear that he understands the honor that is being bestowed upon him and he doesn't intend to take it lightly. Zacchaeus promises then and there to give half his fortune to the poor and if he has defrauded anyone, he will repay them four times as much. And so Jesus responds to Zacchaeus's repentant heart. Today, salvation has come to this house. So two things are important here. First, when Zacchaeus sees Jesus, he knows who he's looking at. He sees somebody who has the ability to change his identity, to cleanse him from a past that he's ashamed of. 
Repentance is not just about fear of being punished or wanting to escape consequences. It's about recognizing that we are broken and wanting to be made new. And secondly, Jesus, or, uh, Zacchaeus' repentant heart is evidence at how he jumps at the chance for forgiveness. His desire to be worthy of Jesus' presence, to be able to enter into that community, that, that relationship with him, causes him to behave like a completely different person, to no longer be the traitor who takes advantage of others for his own gain. Instead, he puts on new clothing, the clothes of justice and generosity, because he sees in Jesus a God who forgives and restores. So this invitation to bear with one another and to forgive one another, it begins with receiving those things from Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, came to serve a human race that rejected him, despised him, betrayed him, abandoned him, and crucified him. But even as he hung from the cross and the people watching him die scoffed at him, his response was, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. What kind of love is that? He's presently dying, unjustly, accused of these fabricated crimes, and he's praying to God the Father on behalf of his murderers. Right now, they are not repentant, but it's as if Jesus were saying, if only they were, if only they would turn away from the darkness inside them, they would be healed. They would be able to receive what I'm offering them. They would be made new. What kind of radical love is this? This invitation to be restored is at the heart of the call to repentance. Jesus offers us transformative forgiveness. He compares himself to a doctor of the soul. In Mark chapter 2, when the religious leaders are criticizing him for having meals with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus' response is, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus' invitation to repent is like him saying, your soul is sick. Come to me. Let me heal you. There's a pastor who I follow on Instagram. His name is Ian Simpkins. And he recently shared this post where he references the Greek word for repentance, metanoia, which means a change of mind or direction. So, for example, if you were going south on a freeway and suddenly you realize you're supposed to be going north, what would you do? You would look for an off-ramp. You would turn around. So he goes on to say that metanoia carries the idea not only of a different trajectory, but also of transformation, a new mind, a new heart, a new will. And this is key. Metanoia is a forward-looking word. It looks toward the promises of God, toward a future where Jesus offers fresh hope. And so as Simkin says, Jesus isn't merely inviting us to turn from brokenness, but also to turn toward wholeness. Not merely away from sickness, but toward healing. Because the gospel isn't just freedom from something, it's freedom for something. So he's saying that Jesus is inviting us to renewal. So we, ha because we have these kind of defective coping mechanisms to try to protect ourselves from a broken world, to give us a sense of self-worth, to battle against the anxiety of not really being in control. And maybe we cling to these patterns because they're all we know. And we fear how vulnerable we might become if we don't have those things to fall back on. But Jesus says, let go. Come to me. Receive my transformative forgiveness. So this call to repent is followed by a call 
to believe, to trust in the power and the promises of Jesus. So it's one thing to realize that we need to turn away from our patterns of brokenness, and it's another to actually walk in Jesus' footsteps and learn to do what he would have done. So this past week, the more that I studied and reflected on patience and forgiveness, the more convicted I felt about how wobbly I am in practicing both. I see the healing work of Jesus, and I'm captivated by it. It's so beautiful. I want to live into that, to become like him. But then I think, if I can't even exercise patience and forgiveness in Boston traffic, how am I supposed to do it in other situations? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? I know some of you definitely in this room drive, right? If not, you have seen other people doing it. But it's just, I can't tell you how many times someone has honked at me and a quick survey of our circumstances made it clear to me that they were honking because they wanted me to break a traffic law and they were angry that I was not doing so. (laughs) And I'm just like, what kind of lawless, rage-fueled movie from the Fast and Furious franchise are we living in? (laughs) So I I get frustrated and it's just easy to sometimes even find myself wishing ill towards people who cut me off or actively endanger my life. <laughs> and as I'm wishing them ill, I've of course developed complete amnesia about the times that I've made very questionable decisions while driving to save time. So I'm obviously trying to pick what is, is potentially a relatable example, but at the heart of it, this is true for all sorts of offenses that we experience. The way that we respond can reveal a lot about what's in our hearts. When I start angrily fantasizing that the person who zoomed around me to save five seconds will find themselves stuck in a traffic jam that will make them 30 minutes late. Realistically, the seed that I'm nurturing in my heart is vengeance. And because it's a common situation, and because someone may have actually broken a law and done something dangerous, it's so easy to first justify my anger, but then to justify my vengeful thoughts and ultimately to justify my bitterness and my self-righteousness that I'm using to cope with with a law-breaking world. So whether it's kind of an everyday frustration, like Boston traffic, or it's the relationships where people we wanted to trust cause us harm, take advantage of us, neglect us, maybe abuse us, forgiveness is not instinctive. And I think we have to start by acknowledging that what Jesus is asking us to do by forgiving is an immense act of faith. It is a trust fall from a dizzying height. Jesus is asking us to do something radical because he intends to work through us to bring about radical change in this world. And this is incredibly important. So I'm gonna say it again. Jesus is asking us to practice radical forgiveness and patience because he intends to use that to bring about radical change in our world. The game plan of Christianity, of Jesus's way of life, is to reconcile literal enemies to the point where they view one another as brothers and sisters. This is radical. So forgiveness is really an act of trust in God's plan, and that includes trusting that God cares deeply about both justice and compassion. And this, I think, can be a major blocker in our journey of forgiveness, the fact that we do have to live with the reality of injustice. So I was thinking about the phenomenon of cancel culture. It's probably hard to go too many sermons, whether you're listening to them online or in person, (laughs) without talking about things like cancel culture. But, you know, it's 
where we ostracize or boycott anyone who's rumored or who has done something that we consider unacceptable. And so, as I was thinking about it, um, I kind of I imagine that one of the main motivators behind cancel culture is the sentiment that nobody is going to hold wrongdoers accountable for their sins. They will have free reign in this world unless we take back power from them. So even if we see the flaws that we see playing out in cancel culture, the relatable part here is a desire for justice, a desire to protect the vulnerable, even a desire not to allow sin to go unchecked. But in this case, what role does forgiveness play? Does it have a role if our end goal is a more just society? So this week, I was reading through Tim Keller's book um, titled Forgive, very appropriate title, and I found this quote from a conversation between the author and professor Bell Hooks and the poet and civil rights activist Maya Angelou. Um, and I think it's Bell Hooks who's speaking when they say this, but it says, for me, forgiveness and compassion are always linked. How do we hold people accountable for wrongdoing and yet at the same time remain in touch with their humanity enough to believe in their capacity to be transformed? Isn't that the million dollar question? Can we pursue justice and forgiveness at the same time? I believe that the Bible says we have to because our call is to pursue God, to walk in the way of Jesus, and Jesus embodies both. The cross is about the intersection between forgiveness and justice. In Jesus, we encounter a God who intends to deal with every sin and who offers a path of restoration and mercy for those who are willing to take it. I think when we set justice and forgiveness in opposition, perhaps sometimes it's because so far our understanding of forgiveness, what we've learned from the people around us, from the culture, it just has remained too shallow. Because the call to forgive is not just another way of saying, get over it and move on. It's not a call to only have positive feelings towards an offender from this moment forward. I think that the call to forgive can be better understood as a decision to walk a path. It's about resisting the temptation to walk the path of revenge and bitterness or just letting a desire to reclaim power and protect yourself harden you against others. And I think this is why I appreciate the term, the phrase, bear with one another, because it sounds like an ongoing process. It sounds like this burden that you carry, but it is a burden that Jesus carries with us. We see that in his life, and he is telling us that he has the ability to make it lighter. Walking the path of forgiveness is choosing to believe in the hope that Jesus is offering. And that hope is this, that God can make all things new. If God cannot or is not in the business of making all things new, maybe cancel culture is our best option. Nobody's going to hold wrongdoers accountable. We have to take back control. But if Jesus is a God who paid for all of our sins, if offenders like Zacchaeus can be transformed into these emblems of grace, if God is enacting a plan of renewal for humanity even as we speak, then we are living in a different kind of story. If we believe that God can make all things new, no one is beyond hope. If we believe that God can make all things new, we can be courageous when the Spirit leads us in steps of reconciliation. And also, if we recognize that God is the healer and transformation is His work, we may not be necessary to every stage of His plan. 
Maybe we are called in a certain season to engage with someone who wronged us. Or maybe it's not safe. And the why is this action is to create space and to trust God to keep working. No matter what the path looks like on that day-to-day basis, we can choose the trajectory of forgiveness, to come to God, to journey with him, and to trust that he can heal and restore us, to ask him to do those things, and to believe that he can strengthen our desire for renewal to the point where, like Jesus, we want renewal even in the lives of those who willfully act as our enemies. And this is why we're framing forgiveness and patience within the context of trusting in the power and the promises of Jesus. Because to walk this path, we need more than willpower. We need the kind of forgiveness and patience that lives inside of Jesus to basically flow through us. We are actually counting on the power of God to meet us and to sustain us when we choose to do this as an act of love and as an act of worship to Jesus. So you may be familiar with this, but if not, I'm going to tell you her story. Um, the story of Corey Ten Boom. So her book, The Hiding Place, was, the, book, the Hiding Place is phenomenal. And if you haven't read it, this is just going to be my, my one book recommendation. I could do more, but this one. I, of the books I read in seminary, I think if I had to pick only one that I said changed my life, I would say it was The Hiding Place. It is a phenomenal book. And it's an autobiography. So it's a, an account of her life in the Netherlands during World War II. So Corey and her family were Christians, and they hid Jewish friends, neighbors, and ultimately actually even strangers in their home. And they were ultimately found out by the Nazis and sent to a concentration camp. And so during that time, Corey saw her father, her sister, obviously countless others, die, and suffered, as you probably can imagine, just atrocities, pains, indignities, losses. But at the same time, she writes about also experiencing incredible moments of grace and seeing God work forgiveness in her heart. And so many people, years after this happens, would want to hear Corey tell her story. And so in a particular particular instance, she recounts this. The war is over, years have passed, um, and she has this unexpected encounter at a church service. So she had been invited to speak there, and part of her talk, as you might expect, centered on God's forgiveness and the need to forgive others. And so after the service, Corey recognizes in the crowd a former guard from a concentration camp, an SS man, who had actually stood guard at the shower door at one of the processing centers she had gone through. So he was the first of her jailers that she had seen since that time. So this man, comes up to Corey, and as she puts it, he is beaming and bowing to her. And he keeps saying how grateful he is for the message that she had just given, that Jesus has washed away our sins. And the man clearly wants to shake her hand, but Corey is struggling internally. These angry, vengeful thoughts start boiling in her, memories of the mockery and the cruelty of the guards. But at the same time, she was acutely aware of the message that she had just shared. So in the midst of this incredible tension, she prays silently. She records the prayer that she prays to Jesus, and she just says, Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And then Corey writes this. She says, as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart 
sprang a love for the stranger that almost overwhelms me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. And that line is so incredible. It's almost breathtaking. So I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness that the world's healing hinges, but on his, on Jesus. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives the love itself. So again, I am so aware of the need to not minimize the reality of the evils that happen in this world or to treat forgiveness like it's a simple thing. But if there's anyone who had a reason to withhold forgiveness, I would probably give that immunity pin to someone like Corey. But her story shows that forgiveness is not like a, like a social theory or an abstract philosophy. It is a power of God meeting us in our deepest pain. Jesus' forgiveness is not a small or a timid thing. It is a rushing tidal wave that sweeps people off their feet and plants them somewhere completely new. It is a powerful force that cleanses everything it touches for everyone who will repent and receive it. Corey got to experience the immensity of God's provision as she chose to walk the seemingly impossible path. And what we see in her story, and we need to believe this, is that forgiveness is strength. It's freedom. It's healing. Corey's anger was righteous. Her pain was justified. But her decision to ask Jesus for his love is life-changing. That is a faith that can move mountains, that can change the way that other people, like you and me, actually live our lives. And if she had clung to bitterness, the story may not have been worth telling. Instead, she lived out the message of forgiveness that she preached, and the story that she tells shines as like this radiant testimony to the power of God. And it may be true that the road will be different. Maybe it'll be longer and harder than what we see in her example in some ways, but we need to believe that the same power is available to us. We need our faith to fuel our forgiveness and patience. All right, so we are in the final stretch here. Um, but the last story, some of you have heard me teach before, so you will not be surprised by this, but it's a personal one. Sometimes when I pray to God, as I'm preparing, I ask him to exempt me from this, to get me out of it. <laughs> he puts a, very, a story very clearly on my heart, and so then I'm like, I think I, I, think I, have, to, I, think I have to tell it anyway. Um, so this story actually starts with what I would consider the first miracle that God ever worked in my life. Um, so even if you do know me, I don't talk a lot about my relationship with my dad. I think because it feels complicated to explain. And sometimes when I've tried, I, I feel like I'm just telling kind of the stereotypical story that you might see in the movies about a formerly absent or unreliable father who wants to change and reconnect with his kid. And maybe it is a common story, unfortunately, for many of us, but it's part of my story. And my relationship with my father colored my childhood with a lot of hurt and a lot of sadness. And then as I became a teenager, the sadness turned into anger, and I stopped wanting to have anything to do with him. I felt justified in holding his failures against him. I was trying to protect myself from getting hurt again. But during my high school years, he really tried to re-engage with me, and my mom, even though they were divorced, encouraged me to say yes to his invitations, to get ice cream or to go on a hike. So I would say yes sometimes, but I still mostly felt resentment in my heart. So when I was about 17, 
my dad and I went on this hike. And about two-thirds of the way up, it started to kind of drizzle, to rain. And so we were kind of sheltering underneath a large tree. And nailed to this tree is this picture of a teenage girl about my age and kind of a description of her life story. And it's very clearly, the way that it's written, a memoriam to someone who has passed. And my dad recognizes the name and the story of this woman, this girl, and he had seen her in the local papers and learned that she had recently taken her own life. So at that time, I hadn't really been confronted with mortality, especially while looking at a picture and the life story of someone my age. And it was like something spoke to me and kind of woke up this part of my brain that had been muted by resentment and anger. And now I actually see this as God's gracious in intervention. But at the time, it kind of just felt like this uncharacteristic thought, this like strong but sudden conviction that life is fragile and short. And I actually didn't know how many days I or anyone else had left. So I should... I should try to forgive my father. Surprisingly, that sentiment actually stuck with me in the years to come. I slowly, probably mostly painfully, moved towards forgiveness. I would try to give my dad the benefit of the doubt more often when he wanted to make up for things. I would create more space to spend time together, maybe even more than I was inclined to. Um, and through that, we did form new and better memories. Even though certain things would definitely rekindle my anger, the more that I saw good in our current relationship, the more I was able to hope. And then, uh, many of you know the story, but when I was a sophomore in college, I began following Jesus. And his message of forgiveness changed my understanding. It showed me the ways that I had been cold or selfish, and it softened my heart more and more. And then when I was a junior, my dad was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And he passed away before I finished the school year. Honestly, some of my last memories of him were not great ones. There are a lot of things I regret not doing and not saying. There are things that he did or that he said that hurt me. And overall, it left me in a very strange place emotionally to have done, especially at that age, all this work to repair a relationship that was suddenly over. So probably four years later, this was my first year living in Boston. And I experienced what I would probably characterize now as a nudge from the Holy Spirit. He's just hanging out, intervening unexpectedly. But it was to do this very specific writing challenge that I had come across. And it basically became this like literary healing journey where I tried to make sense of all the complicated feelings I had about my relationship with my father. And God met me as I wrote about the pain and the healing and the strange kind of in-between places. And through that, I found myself journeying deeper and deeper into this concept of understanding what forgiveness looked like. And so I remember after finishing it, talking to one of my best friends. She was someone I knew in college, and so she was actually one of the people who consoled me after my father passed away. And so I was telling her that the conclusion of the story I had written was basically me owning the fact that I could feel hurt by my father and still acknowledge how much I loved him at the same time. And she started to cry which startled me, but she just explained that she was so overwhelmed to see how much healing God had done in my heart. And she said, Mandy, in the years that I've known you, I've never heard you say out loud that you love your father. This is a really big deal. And I hadn't realized that, but it was true. And in the wake of that conversation, I started to feel more and more peace, reflecting on my story and just learning to hold that tension. And so a few years later, I was at a Sunday gathering at Reality in one of our old spaces. And it was Father's Day. 
which was usually an emotionally complex day for me. I mean, sometimes I felt numb, sometimes I felt grief all over again. That day, I was overcome with kind of a strange and unexpected emotion, and so I went up to two of our elders at the time, both of whom were fathers, and asked them for prayer. And it wasn't until, I like wasn't really sure what I was feeling until I just, the words were coming out of my mouth and I was asking, giving them my prayer request, and I found myself just saying that this was the first Father's Day I could remember where all I felt was that I missed my dad. I didn't feel anger, I didn't feel pain, I didn't feel numbness, I just missed him. And I hadn't realized until then just how far God had brought me. Now, I mean, of course you may be able to under predict and understand that I wouldn't say that that means that my journey is over because the reality is that dealing with pain from a close relationship, like a parent, is something that you might work through for an entire lifetime. But it is true that the level of freedom and heart change that I experienced just step by step as God led me forward showed me that forgiveness had won in my heart. It had taken root and it was flourishing. And I recognize other stories may have a different timeline, a different landscape, but in Christ, I have to believe that the trajectory is the same. God moves us toward wholeness because restoration is his desire for his children. There's this metaphor that Jesus uses in one of his parables, and it's about a good tree, a tree that is fundamentally healthy and vibrant, he says, will produce good fruit. And I think a similar metaphor works here. Forgiveness is the character of Jesus. It is his work and his lifelong passion. When you plant the seed, the Christ-like seed of forgiveness and tend to it patiently over time, you will get a good tree that will bear good fruit. It may take a long time to grow, as trees do, but I think we will always be surprised to discover what God can do the faithful watering and in the patient waiting. By walking that long, hard road of forgiveness, we can experience the invitation that we hear in the Psalms to taste and see that the Lord is good. Pursue forgiveness and you will taste his goodness. Practice patience and you will taste his kindness. Bear with one another and you will experience his love working in you. So this is my closing invitation for us. I recognize we are all likely in very different places, meditating on these themes and hearing this message. So I'm going to offer you three different prayers. This is going to be our closing prayer, but there's going to be three different kind of focal points. And so I just invite you to listen. If it's helpful for you to close your eyes as you listen and just kind of enter into a posture of receiving, feel free to do that. And I just invite you to pay attention to the one that stands out to you as we transition to our time of response. So this is the first prayer. Jesus, help me to sincerely ask for forgiveness. Help me not to fear owning up to what I've done as if the weight of shame will crush me. Help me to trust that my repentance can bring healing into my life and the lives of others. Please meet me now with your transformative grace. Secondly, Jesus, help me to choose the path of forgiveness. I'm not sure what lies ahead, and part of me is afraid that I'll turn a corner and find myself facing pain or disappointment again. 
Show me that you walk this road with me. Remind me that it is the power of your forgiveness that will heal the world. Fill my heart with the merciful love that only you can give and the wisdom to follow your leading. And lastly, Jesus, help me to become a person of patience. Remind me of the ways that you have loved me at my most unlovable. Help me to bear with others and to believe that you are able to transform and heal even if I can't see it now. Help me to trust that you are working renewal in my heart and in those I struggle to have compassion toward. Help me to put on the new self you have created and to walk in compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, even today. So we pray for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm just going to do a quick invitation as the band begins to play. This time of response is so, is so key. I could stand up here and talk about, it, talk about these things for another half hour, and I will not. But there, I believe that there is some kind of seed of forgiveness, whether that's to forgive, to receive forgiveness, to walk with and bear with people that Jesus is planting in our hearts now. And I'm just inviting you right now to listen, to listen for what that might be. It might be helpful for you to sing the words of the song that we're about to play. It might be helpful for you to come down to the carpets and just take a moment to focus on the voice of God that is present to us in these moments. If you would like prayer, there will be leaders at the front. I'll be over here at the side, and I would be happy to pray with you. But I just want to invite you now to take this moment and ask God to meet with you. Ask him what he wants to say.